What a joy it is to be with you all uh, this morning and to just continue to bring in this new year. Happy New Year uh, for uh, to each of you. Uh, my wife and I, we were unable to uh, uh, be here last week. And I tell you, we uh, just love Sojourn and really miss Sojourn Community Church when we're gone. It is a habit forming, people habit forming community. It's always a joy to be able to gather around God's word with God's people uh, to continue to learn and grow as Christians and as disciples of Christ. And today we're going to continue our series that uh, Pastor Cliff kicked us off with last week called First Things First. And this series is really designed to just bring us back to uh, this the essential foundation of Christianity. Uh, you can say the, the fundamentals of Christianity. And just like with music or uh, sports, the fundamentals are, are so important. In fact, in music and sports, if you don't have the fundamentals now, you can't create, you can't improvise, you can't make beautiful uh, jazz or beautiful music or do uh, wonderful moves uh, because you don't have the fundamentals. So we want to come back to the fundamentals. Last week, we learned the importance of having a single vision a heavenly vision as opposed to a earthly vision, an eternal vision as opposed to a temporary vision. We talked about the importance of the eye, the importance of what we set our eyes on and how that determines our affection. And Pastor Cliff so profoundly said, heavenly vision is essential for healthy living. And it's so important that we have a heavenly vision so that we can have healthy living. Well, today we're going to build on this uh, one vision by looking at this call to have one master and one purpose. One master and one purpose. Last week, we talked about the importance of living with our heads up. This week, we're going to talk about the importance of living with our heads up and our arms up and palms down. We're going to talk about the importance of looking at one master so that we do not live in a constant state of anxiety and worry and that we are free then to fulfill the purpose that God has called us to do. So if you would stand to your feet, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 24 through 34. What you see on the screen or holding your hand is the very word of God. Um, we're going to read it as such. The precious, authentic, matchless word of God reads, now one can, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass on the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom 
and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself and each day has enough of its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people to hear this word. And whenever we gather together, uh, we gather together with uh, our minds and hearts full. Perhaps we're thinking about other things, but we thank you for this opportunity to come to this place with other believers and to have our minds set upon you. Thank you for Sojourn Community Church. Thank you for everyone that's present under my voice. We beg you to speak for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. There was a book published in the early 90s called The Day America Told the Truth. And in that book, the authors did a massive survey of the state of American morality. And one of the questions they asked was, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? And the findings were crazy. Here are some of the results. 16% of those surveys said that they would give up their American citizenship. Another 16% said that they would leave their spouses. 10% said that they would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. 7% said that they would kill a stranger. It's a gangster. 3% said they would put their children up for adoption. Now, I assure you, uh, those of you who participated in this survey, you will remain anonymous, all right? No, I'm just joking. No, this, uh, seriously, this, this shows us that uh, while most of us won't face a $10 million dare, that we will face the long grind of living in a world that worships money. Living in a world that bows its knee at the altar of wealth. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. And Jesus is making this crystal clear in his text that as followers, as those who have surrendered their lives to him, that he calls for single devotedness. He calls for us to serve him. We are his slaves. He is our master. And the word master carries weight. A master demands their servant's loyalty, their servant's devotion, total devotion. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you must understand that I am your Lord and that I demand of you. And what I demand of you is all of you. So when he calls for his servants to serve him, He's not looking to hear excuses that say, Jesus, I, I would serve you, but my other master is calling me. Jesus, I, I, I would do this for you, but I can't because something else or someone else has control of my heart too. And the Bible tells us that we are called as followers of Jesus to surrender our heart, mind, and soul to him totally, to love him with our, all of our being. And Jesus can make such demands without being seen as uh, a psychotic because he is God and he is good and he is a master that is out for our greatest good and also for our deepest joys. Jesus is a jealous 
Lord. He is a jealous master, and this is not an immature jealousy. This is not a childlike jealousy. This is a holy jealousy. This is a divine jealousy. This is the creator calling the creature in which he created to serve him. Now, what's interesting about the 24th verse is that Jesus kind of puts this dichotomy up between how we can only serve God. Uh, we can't serve two masters. Either we will serve God or we will serve money. And it's interesting that Jesus kind of singles out money here. Money is non-moral. There's no inherent ill or good with it. Money becomes our master, however, when we trust it for security, when we seek it for our significance, when we build our identity upon it, when we use it for selfish gain or hoard it and spend it in a way that is only beneficial to us. Money makes an excellent servant, but a terrible master. And both those who are wealthy and those who are poor can be a slave to money. And the question we want to ask early on in this sermon is, is who are you serving? Are you serving one master or two masters? Do you have a, the right perspective, a heavenly perspective? And here's a small diagnostic to help us to pursue. And I want you to notice that as we diagnose to see where our own hearts are, again, it's not just wealthy people who have a problem with money. It is also uh, those who are uh, poor and who do not have. So here's some questions for you. Is your job a means to the end, serving God, or is it the end? Is your next promotion all that matters? Are there areas of your life where you are dishonest to gain a few extra dollars, dishonest on your taxes, making deals under the table, stealing from your neighborhood or family? Are you willing to hurt others, sell drugs, deny others opportunities to make ends meet? Do you fantasize about what you would do with more money? Saying things like, if only I had this amount of money, my life would be perfect. Everything would be okay. Do you ignore the emotional and spiritual needs of friends and family and then justify it by saying, well, my job is simply to put food on the table. It's not to relate. Any of these things can point to the fact that we may have money in the place of God. And all of us, in some way, one way or another, are probably tempted to believe the lie that money and wealth would solve our problems and that if only we had, we could have true joy. In, uh, uh, Ian Diario writes in a book, Trivial Pursuits, he says this, when money and status... it it affords is a goal in and of itself, we can be assured that we have bought into a lie, an illusion. If money is the goal of life, then its fierce grip holds us captive to an identity so tied to consumption that we barely have room to breathe or space to think of ourselves outside of those terms. And that's what Jesus is getting to here. He is getting to, even throughout the Gospels and all the Gospels, that, that money has a way of gripping us and holding on to us in, in, in a, almost a universal way. 
And throughout the gospel, we see that Jesus talks about money an awful lot. He talks about it more than he does most subjects. He talks about it more than he does marriage, more than he does sex, more than he does power, more than he does even heaven and hell. And why is that the case? It's because materialism, covetousness, love of money, greed, um, all these things, they cross social economic status. They move across cultures and, and races, nationalities, and money, a promise is big, but delivers small. And so Jesus is going to remind us in this text that it is far, far better to serve God. That it is that true security, true joy is not found in the things that we accumulate on this earth, but it is found in a triune being, the one who created us. And my prayer for Sojourn Community Church is that is that we would see that, is that we would have one vision, a, a heavenly vision, a vision that is storing up treasures in heaven and not on earth, an eternal vision, one that values and knows that, that after we die, after this life, that we will live forever. But one that also has one master that is constantly reorienting, as a church, that we are reorienting our heart daily to our one Lord, our one master and living for him and him alone. It's an interesting passage in 2 Kings chapter 17, chapter, uh, verse 41. It says some powerful words I pray would not be true in my own life and pray that would not uh, be true overall in, in your life as well. It says this, while these people were worshiping the Lord, speaking of the Assyrians, they were serving their idols. They were serving their idols. Remember, while money may bring you status and make you feel significant, it's temporal. Stock markets crash. Emergencies wipe out savings. Circumstances change. Therefore, we must place our trust in God, in a God who gives us a status that is secure, a status that will not change, and a God who tells us to find our worth in him, our identity in him. And a God who loves us enough to, that he gave us his only son and promises us life and life more abundantly. As Bob Marley says, don't gain the world and lose your soul. Wisdom is better than silver and gold. And in this text, we're going to see and hear wisdom speak. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. And he's going to tell us why it is unwise to serve two masters and why money makes a horrible Lord. And what it boils down to is this. Jesus is going to show us that the wrong master leads to worry. The wrong master leads to worry. He's going to do so with logical arguments as well as lifelike illustrations in order to calm our hearts and to teach us to to trust him. Three times in his text, verse 25, verse 31, verse 34, he commands us, do not worry. Do not worry about your life. Do not worry about what you would drink. Do not worry about tomorrow. Now, it's important that we understand there's a difference between a healthy concern and a unhealthy concern or worry and anxiety. There is a difference. And Jesus here is teaching us or counseling us against a worry that is self-centered, a worry that is rooted in a lack of trust in God, a worry that is fixated in appearances, what people think about us, in possessions, and 
in stature. And that's why he says in this text, it's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Jesus is trying to help his, his audience who's, who's here on this mountain, hearing about what it means to, to be his followers. He's trying to help them to stop reducing their life to these things. So life is more than how you look. It is more than the clothes that you put on your back. It is more than your next meal. He says there is a way to, be, to have a healthy concern about those things. And then there's an unhealthy way where that becomes God, that becomes king, and it, it owns you. A, a wise architect is going to wake up sometimes in the middle of the night to check numbers, to steward over his project, to make sure everything is in line so that the building is built the way that it should be built. That's healthy. But it turns into worry when it's all he thinks about, when he's abandoning his family, when it's causing him to lose weight and to pick up unhealthy habits. As a preacher, it is wise for me to be concerned about the sermon that I'm going to present, to make sure that I'm rightly dividing the word of truth, to cross-reference scriptures and make sure that I'm preaching the intent of the Bible. But it becomes worry. It becomes anxiety and anxiety that Jesus is talking about when the message is all about me. When the day before, all I'm thinking about is what I'm going to wear and how I want to impress people and how I hope I come off. And all of us are tempted to worry. All of us are tempted to have this unhealthy anxiety rule our lives. All of us are, are, are tempted to think Sometimes even the worst about if this does not come through, then this is going to happen. But Jesus is giving us an invitation, an invitation to defeat unhealthy anxiety, an invitation to not live in a perpetual state of worry, an invitation to be free, to live life more abundantly. Yo, when God is your master, you, you, don't, have to, you don't have to change smoke in order to, to calm your nerves. When God is your master, you don't have to take that extra shot of bourbon in order to deal with reality or take more medicine than you should in order to glaze over your problems. When God is your master, you, you don't have to binge over Netflix in order to forget about your problems. And you shouldn't and don't have to worry to the point uh, about your kids to the point that everyone else is worried about you. Jesus is trying to free us from this anxiety, from this pressure. He's trying to remind us that the pressure is off, that he is faithful and that when God is our master, we will be taken care of. And I love how Jesus does it. He drops a, 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 a magnificent line here. He says, who of you can add a single hour to your life by worrying? See, the problem with anxiety is twofold. One is that there is a destructive and unhealthy anxiety. The other is that under this unhealthy anxiety is a heart issue. And the heart issue is control. See, ungodly anxiety spikes from a desire to, to want God-like control, from a belief that if we were in control and if we can control things, everything would work out. And instead of casting our anxieties to God 
Instead of allowing him to bury the load, when we are buckling under anxiety, when we are pacing back and forth, when we are losing sleep, when we are caffeinating ourselves to make it through the day, it ultimately is because we want to be in control of all things. And because we are not trusting God. And if we follow that line all the way back and all the way up, we'll see that somewhere in our heart, we place God as king to the side and we're worshiping something else. And normally it's a false lie about wealth and money. But Jesus said, you don't have to. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5 and 7, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And that's what I mean when I say heads up, hands up and palms over, that God is inviting us to cast our anxieties on him. See, Jesus is poking at us in his text. And he does so by reminding us, he says, you cannot add a single hour to your life. What is he saying? He's saying, you're not God. You're not, you're not even able to add one year to your life. You can't even control how long you live. So don't worry about these trivial things. Give them to the Lord. And how does he counsel us? How does he minister to us to give it to the Lord? It's by pointing to our, our great value, the value that we have from the Father. And he does this by showing us that not only is God our master, but God is just that. He is our father. Twice in this text, he refers to God as our heavenly father. See, when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord, when we confess our weakness, when we confess that we are sinners, when we confess that we are not in control because the Holy Spirit is drawing us and, and working on us, not only do we receive Jesus Lord, but we receive God as our heavenly father and he obligates himself to us to care for us. He obligates himself to us to provide for us. He obligates himself to us to show that he is greater and better than any earthly father, that he is not a dead be dead, that he is faithful and true. That's what we see happening in this text. Jesus is pointing us to the father and he does so by pointing us to nature, by pointing us to wildlife. He's going to make an argument here from, from lesser to greater. He says, listen, consider, look, pay attention to, study the birds of the air who do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. And he says, and aren't you more valuable than, to him than they are? Now, Jesus is not teaching us that it's okay for us to be lazy, and that everything is going to be 100% peachy keen as his children. No, he, he's telling us to observe the birds. And part of observing the birds is to see that birds are hardworking creatures. Part of observing the birds is seeing that they instinctively have a, a, a nature that wants to provide. Part of studying the birds is seeing that sometimes birds starve. Sometimes predators eat them. But the general rule is, is that God is the one who is providing for them, who is taking care of them. 
And in the same way, God is teaching us that the birds demonstrate God's care for the lesser. And if he cares for birds, if he cares for the birds that he created, then surely he's going to care for you. Surely he's going to take care of you. Surely he's going to provide for me as well. <laughs> Have you heard the conversation between a sparrow and a robin? Have you eavesdropped? On their pillow top? Well, let me help you. The robin said to the sparrow, I really would like to know why these anxious human beings rush around and worry so. The sparrow said to the robin, friend, it must be because they have no heavenly father such as that cares for you and me. What would it look like for us to have more faith than the birds of the air? What would it look like for us to believe that God, our master, loves us and that he is going to provide for us? What would it look like for us to not fixate ourselves on appearance, to not fixate and worry about God's provision, to believe that he has a plan for you and that he is going to provide and where he guides, he provides. Not only does he point us to the robins and the birds, he also points us to flowers as well. Verses 28 through 30, Jesus is going to say, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon, all of his splendor was dressed, was dressed like one of these, was not dressed like one of these. Listen, he points us to the birds. He says, consider them. He points us to the wildlife, to, 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 to flowers. He says, look at them. Look at how they dress. They don't labor or spin. They don't go to the mall. They don't obsess over what they're going to wear tomorrow. He says, and yet, they look better than Solomon. 21st century version. They look better than the 10 best dressed men and women you know. Because God takes care of them. God is dressing them. And then in verse 30, he challenges. He says, so... Why do you have so little faith? And that's really the issue in my life when I'm worrying, when I'm anxious. It's a faith issue. It's me not trusting God as my sole master and sole provider. It's me wringing my hand in fear as if I am homeless, as if I do not have a, a father who is going to provide. Jesus gets to the heart of issue where he says this, but the pagans run after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you are in need of them. As one translation put it, these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Those who are not followers of Christ. He says, this is what, this is what people who, who don't follow God as a master obsess over. They reduce life to net worth. They reduce life to the way you appear. They reduce life to how, uh, how fashionable you are or where you live or what you have. He says that's a temptation for them to do, a generalization. He says, but that's, that's not what your heavenly father calls you to do. He doesn't call you to reduce life to those things because life is eternal. He knows what you need. 
One of my favorite biographies is a a book called Delighted in God uh, by a guy named Roger Steer. And the reason it's one of my favorites is because it's about a man by the name of George Mueller who lived in the uh, 19th century in Bristol, London. He was an ordinary guy. Um, He didn't have much wealth, but he read the scriptures and read the word and saw how God was committed to provide for his children. And then he looked out across Bristol. He said, if this is true, if God has truly promised that he will provide for his children, and if the church believes that, why is it so many orphans? Why is it thousands and thousands of kids in, in London without a home and without food? Why isn't the church taking this cause up to care for the needy and the poor? So he said, well, I'm going to. And not only am I going to, I'm going to believe that God is going to provide. Not only am I going to believe that God is going to provide, I'm not going to go around begging for money. And this book deeply impacted me years ago. And my wife read it. We read it together. And it deeply impacted us. Singing the faith of George Mueller to believe in this, this God who said that he's going to provide for his children really has helped us in our marriage to, to remember that. Remember years ago, we were doing family planning and and I know that me and Amber, for various reasons, and that, that point back to wanting to just be a light for the Lord, wanted, wanted a, a, a larger family, and we wanted to adopt kids, and we wanted to just, in, in a culture that, uh, that really doesn't love uh, children and that sees children as, as burdensome, we wanted to, to have a, a family that, that went against that. It was just a personal goal of ours, but we started looking at finances, and we said, there's no way. But after reading Mueller's example and how much he believed that the Lord was provided, we studied hard, stewarded well, and said, we're, we're going to do it to the best of our ability because the Lord will provide. But one of my favorite stories that impacted me in this book was about how he started this orphanage. And over his life, he provided for over 10,000 orphans. The Lord used him to provide in that way. The Lord provided for them through him. And it talks about how one day, one morning, there was no food for these children to eat. And still he gathered the staff together. They held hands and they prayed over food that wasn't there. And then there was a knock at the door. The knock was a lady who uh, was in the neighborhood who said that the Lord woke her up in the middle of the night and told her to bake bread. And she baked bread all night. And she brought it to the kids and said, can you, can you use this? And then right after that, there was another knock on the door. A milkman was going to deliver milk and his vehicle, uh, his, his way of transportation broke down on him. It says, I have all this milk. And they told me that you house children here and, we're, and, and, and this milk is about to spoil. I have no way to carry it a long distance. Can you use some milk? And they gave thanks to the Lord's provision. And the reason I say that is not to point out George Mueller as this patron saint, as this man who just was extraordinary. No, he was an ordinary man who just chose to believe that God wanted to provide for his children, who believed that God was his master. And in James chapter 5, James talks about Elijah in a positive light, but he is quick to say, but Elijah is not a, a special person or a special case. No, God does this for his children. He does this for those who place their faith in him. He is a provider. And if you look back on your own life, you know that the Lord has provided in ways and times that you did not expect. And when you did not deserve, but he is gracious and merciful. 
He is a heavenly father who takes care of the birds and the flowers of the field. And truly, he will take care of his church. And what would it look like for us to step into that, to believe that? What would it look like for us to believe that the Lord is for us as our master and as our father? Verse 33 shows us our purpose. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. While the world is spending their energy worrying about money and possessions and appearance, we spend our energy seeking God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And Jesus is saying this is our first priority. This is our one purpose as Christians. Jesus came preaching about God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is near. He inaugurated God's kingdom. He brought it in. God's kingdom is, is God's rule. It's his, his reign. God's kingdom is not based upon self. It's not based upon works. It's not, it's not based upon possessions. It's not based upon what we have or what we do not have. It says, no, God's kingdom is based on righteousness and specifically it's based on a king who is righteous. And the members of God's kingdom become members of God's kingdom by grace and grace alone. It's grace and grace alone. But those who have received God's grace, those who have received his mercy, those who have seen their own neediness, those who, who see that they are not God and they are not in control of their life, they throw themselves at his mercy and they seek him. The word seek is active. The word seek requires work. The word seek means to investigate. It means to dig. Being a disciple is an active pursuit. And not only is it an active pursuit, it's a daily pursuit. Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. It's a lot punched in there. He says, if you want me to be your master, your Lord, you have to live not to your own advantage, but to my advantage. And that's a daily pursuit. That's a day by day, morning by morning pursuit. That is us lifting up our heads every day. That is our setting our affections on the things that are above, Colossians 3, 1 through 2, every day. That is us recognizing our creatureliness every time our feet hit the ground and recognizing that we are not in control, that he is, that our life no longer belongs to us. And that's a good thing because if it belonged to us, we would wreck it but our life belongs to one who loves us, who died in our place, who has promised us life abundantly for all eternity. And he says, follow me. And when you follow me, cast your cares on me. Seek my kingdom. Seek my face. The disciples did not follow Jesus by accident. They made a conscious decision to follow him because of the Holy Spirit working in their life and in their heart. They gave up careers to follow him, and he provided for them. He provided for them not only the three years that he was on earth, Jesus did, but he provided for them, and he'll do the same for you. I love what the text says. Jesus goes on to say that by following this one purpose, by making this our one priority, he says all these other things will be added. All these other things 
will be added. And that's what, what God promises in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. If we're going to seek God's kingdom first, it must be out of faith and not out of force. It must be out of trust. It must be out of relying on him. He says, because anyone who comes to me must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder to those who earnestly seek him. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Following Christ has great reward. Following Christ, you will receive the, the greatest of rewards, making him and his business a priority. The story is told of Queen Elizabeth who asked a merchant to go on a mission for the crown. And he hesitated. And he said to her that such a long absence would be fatal to her, to his business. She responded by saying, you take care of my business and I'll take care of yours. And his story is told that when he returned, he found that through the investment and care of the queen, his business had increased in value and he was wealthier than when he left. And that's what the Lord is telling you today. Take care of my business. Live with your head up. Not on temporal things, but on eternal things. Treasuring treasures in heaven and not on earth. Find your identity and significance, not in how you look and what you're going to wear, but find it in God. Live with one master. Don't live to please man. Live to please your heavenly father. Seek his kingdom and his purpose, and all these things will be added. Reject the secular mindset. Know that Jesus is jealous with a divine jealousy. He has bought you. He loves you. He will take care of you. If you can stand to your feet with me. I just want you to raise your head, heads up. And then I want you to raise your arms, arms up, palms up. And then I want you to just close your eyes for a second and let's deal with reality. The reality is, is that all of us every day are carrying hard things. Perhaps a, a hard upbringing, a hard past, hard relationships, a lot of hurt. And the temptation is for those things to bring us down, to, to make our arms tired, to make our lives tired. Medical debt. Sickness, sick children. Questions about the future, questions about provision. I want you to receive this invitation. Turn your palms over. Those things don't belong to you. It's not yours to, to figure out. It's not yours to control. That business that you started, it doesn't belong to you. That marriage, you're a steward over it. That friendship, you're a steward over it. It's not where you find your identity. That job, that boss, that's not where your provision comes from. It comes from the Lord. Cast your cares on him. Consider the birds. Let your arms down. If you can look to the screen. This is Psalm 37. This is David picking up on, uh, or Jesus picking up on this language that is throughout the scripture. 
And I just want you to read the underground parts. And I want you to read it with authority as we are going to live a life focused on Jesus, not focused on ourselves and anxieties. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong together. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like the green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture together. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. You hear that? Seek first the kingdom of God. Trust in him and he will do this together. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. It's a word for us all today. And every Sunday when we gather, we take communion. We take a meal to remind us of God's faithfulness and his love for us. We break bread to remind us of God becoming man and of giving his body for us so that we could have life. We drink wine or juice to remind us of the fact that Jesus shed his blood and that as a result, we're under our covenant of grace. And we dip the bread in wine. The wine is marked by twine or juice, whatever your conscience permits. So continue to remember and remind ourselves of this reality of a kingdom that is here, but that is also to come. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to partake in communion. Rather, I want you to take Christ. See that salvation is a gift freely given that you cannot earn, that you cannot impress your way forward to contain. It only comes by you placing your faith in Jesus Christ, by you making a conscious decision to follow him, to believe that he is in control by you believing that he was a real man who lived and who died the death that you deserve and that through him there is forgiveness of sin and life evermore. Take him. Know that he is no longer dead, but he is resurrected and he is in heaven on the right-hand side of God with all power. And one day he is to return. And those who have placed their faith and trust in him will reign with him. And those who have not will forever perish in eternal damnation. Accept life today, we plead with you. Accept this king, this master, this Lord, and know that he will provide for you. Let's pray.